From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, June 29th. I'm Marco Werman. Egypt's new leader speaks to the crowds in Tahrir Square. And later, Russian tank maneuvers set to a waltz. This unusual tank ballet was choreographed by the Bolshoi Theater. But these weapons weren't built for dancing. Plus, an undocumented teenager's view of his homeland. Are you going to be the first college graduate in your family? Yeah, I am. Well, I think Mexico needs you more than you need Mexico. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece, presenting Endeavor, Sunday, July 1st at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Egypt's new leader was in a defiant mood today in Cairo's Tahrir Square. President-elect Mohamed Morsi is to be officially sworn in tomorrow, but today he read an informal oath of office before a crowd of tens of thousands in the square. Many of those in the crowd, like Morsi, were members of the Muslim Brotherhood, and Morsi told them that they are the real power in Egypt. The BBC's John Line in Cairo describes the scene. It was for a unique spectacle because, strange to say to a democratic nation, Egyptians aren't used to seeing their president. Mm. And most Egyptians will never have seen the president face to face and will rarely even have seen him on television. Hosni Mubarak was that remote in the three decades of his rule. So for the first time they are, they are literally having a face-to-face experience with their own president and he absolutely milked that. Mohamed Morsi was standing behind a lectern, a podium with the presidential seal of office on it. But then as he got into his stride, he moved away, pushed his security guards aside, said, look, I'm here. I'm a man of the people, took a microphone in hand and even opened his jacket to show the crowd that he wasn't wearing a bulletproof vest. He wasn't afraid of them, stressing that he was a man of the people and that his authority came from the people right in front of him. Well, it sounds pretty dramatic. I mean, what about his comment uh, about getting Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman freed from prison in the United States? Well, that will go down very well with the crowd in Egypt and not so well, I suspect, in the United States, frankly. He was careful in this speech to be mostly pretty pragmatic, actually, but at the same time to assert his independence and the independence of his new movement. I think realistically he must know there's a very remote chance of that happening. Of course, Sheikh Oman Abdul Rahman has been convicted by courts of law in the United States, so there's no way one can see that he would be released and moved to Egypt. So he's speaking to the crowd here, as he did on many other issues, like wanting the dissolution of parliament to be overturned. Again, something that's not going to happen. But at the same time, he was also giving reassurance to all of America's uh, international partners. For example, there's no threat to end the peace treaty with Israel, although he hasn't actually mentioned it absolutely specifically. And they want to maintain good relations with the United States. Before the election, they sent out emissaries around Europe to the United States to reassure all those old traditional Western allies that the Muslim Brotherhood would not 
be a radical change in Egypt's foreign policy. I mean, Egypt has numerous pressing demands at home. Were, were there promises Morsi made at Tahrir Square that, that did resonate kind of at a, at a domestic level for the crowd? I think one thing that really struck me above all, he said that every institution of government, their first aim will be to work for the dignity of all Egyptians. It's a great promise. Now, if he can fulfill that or even repeat it in a year's time, we'll have to wait and see. But I think that is exactly what the whole revolution was about, and that's exactly what people want to hear from him. For decades, frankly, this country has had rulers, particularly one ruler, Hosni Mubarak, who treated them with almost open contempt. Mm. And I think this message will be extremely welcome. As I said, it depends how it is put into practice, and there's extreme difficulties on the way in terms of relations with the military, in terms of a rusty, broken, entrenched old bureaucracy that mainly works for its own interests. But at least he's saying the right thing. The BBC's John Lyon in Cairo. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Syria was the agenda when Secretary of State Hillary Clinton met her Russian counterpart today. The U.S. and Russia are at odds over, among other issues, Russian weapon sales to the Syrian government. The sales are a key part of Russian foreign policy, as the BBC's Steve Rosenberg reports. At an arms fair outside Moscow, five Russian tanks weave gracefully back and forth, their gun barrels rising and falling in time to a waltz. This unusual tank ballet was choreographed by the Bolshoi Theatre. But these weapons weren't built for dancing. The tanks fire shells, machine guns spew bullets, and the demonstration ground almost disappears in clouds of smoke. Watching in the stands are potential clients Delegations from Africa, Asia, the Middle East and the Gulf. Russia is the world's second largest arms exporter. One of its customers is particularly controversial. Syria is due to take delivery of Russian surface-to-air missiles, armoured rocket systems and, according to some reports, MiG fighter jets. Despite the increasing violence there, the Russians have no intention of tearing up the contracts. Igor Sevastyanov is deputy head of Russia's state-controlled arms exporter. If the contract was signed before, it's necessary to fulfill. We fulfill our international obligations in accordance with international rules. Russian TV reports on the cargo vessel, which had been shipping refurbished Russian helicopter gunships to Syria. Last week, it had its insurance withdrawn in British waters and was forced to turn back. But Moscow insists the helicopters will be delivered. The West has accused Russia of shoring up President Assad. Russia accuses the West of double standards. Ruslan Puchov is a defense analyst. Russia doesn't see any problems in selling weapons to Syria if CIA and French and British secret services are shipping via Turkey military hardware to the rebels, including the hard Islamists. In Syria, rebels attack a military vehicle, which bursts into flames. What Russia claims to fear most from this conflict isn't the prospect of losing lucrative arms contracts. It's radical Islamists taking power and threatening Russia's national security. Andrei Klimov is on the Russian Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee. 
This is not about Kalashnikov or about helicopters. This is about very dangerous things near our door. But does there come a point when Russia says enough is enough, the situation in Syria is out of control, we stop our support for President Assad? Look, I can tell you only one thing. We in Russia have no illusion about this regime. We don't want to prolong this regime for decades or for centuries, no. Our task is to find peaceful solution out of this as soon as possible. According to Ruslan Pukhov, Russia's equally concerned that if President Assad goes, Russia's influence in the Middle East will disappear with him. Syria, it's the only country in the Middle East which follows, let's say, our advices. This is the country where we can exercise certain tangible influence. And, of course, the loss of Syria will mean that we'll have no influence at this region at all. It has some symbolic value of Russia as a great power. Back at the arms fair, the presidential guard marches across the field in their Tsarist-era uniforms. Putin's Russia still sees itself as a military superpower, a country which has just as much right as America to sell weapons to whoever it wants and gain influence wherever it can. But the Kremlin is pragmatic. If Moscow begins to feel it has more to lose than to gain from backing President Assad, the Syrian leader might find himself coming under renewed pressure from the East as well as the West. That was the BBC's Steve Rosenberg in Moscow. Before the uprising broke out in Libya last year, nearly two million immigrants were living there. Most had arrived there illegally. The government of Muammar Gaddafi took a laissez-faire attitude because it needed the workers. So does the new Libya as it rebuilds its economy. But the country is also trying to put controls on immigration, and now it's struggling with a labor shortage. Marine Olivezi has a story from Tripoli. Libya's building and construction exhibition is getting underway with some last-minute finishing touches. Ahmed Mujad is the North African director at MISA, a Turkish construction group. He says the exhibition marks his company's return to business after a year and a half on hold. We want to restart our work because we are sure that there are projects here and we have uh, references here and we will get a lot of work, inshallah. Mujat expects business to pick up after the July elections as Libya embarks on new public construction projects. But Mujat's not just scouting for government contracts, he also needs foreign labor. Libya today needs a lot of workers, so they must find solution for them to stay here. Before the revolution, most construction workers here were undocumented migrants from North and Sub-Saharan Africa. Many fled during last year's uprising, but some remained. Adala Abdouaziz, who's from Nigeria, worked in a Libyan cement factory for eight years. But this spring he was arrested because he lacked legal documents. None of us here has been here to sleep or do something. We work. The Libyans need us here. We know we need them as much as they needed us, you understand? Libya only has a population of about 6 million, so the country has depended on foreigners to fill jobs in farms, factories, hospitals and private homes. Jeremy Haslam, with the International Organization for Migration, says labor shortage today is widespread. I don't think there's a single sector of the economy that's unaffected. The migrant population represented about a third of the workforce in Libya. It is not enough just to try and seal the borders and try and deny 
migrants crossing into Libya, that they have to balance this need to meet the needs of the private sector for economic recovery of the country. Libya's interim labor minister, Mustafa Roudjibani, says they're trying to find that balance. He says they've issued more than 100,000 work permits and are processing half a million visa applications. Most are for jobs that Libyans don't want, but he points out that creating an effective immigration policy is hard in a country emerging from 42 years of dictatorship. During Gaddafi's, no one can talk about anything, including this subject, you know, but now people have freedom, they are practicing democracy, and with all that, they talk on any subject, and this is one of the hot subjects we have now. So I have to explain what type of people we are bringing, and what type of jobs, and what we are doing for the Libyans. Ujibani says it's getting easier for migrants to get work permits, but they still need to be sponsored by an employer. Critics say that doesn't help day laborers and domestic workers who are in high demand but usually find jobs after they've entered the country illegally. 15-year-old Becky arrived in Tripoli in January. She found a job as a maid paying $400 a month. Becky sent half her earnings to her older sister in Nigeria, but then she got arrested last month. I'm going back from work. I'm going back to your house and they arrest me on the road. They don't catch me with anything. They just arrest me and put me inside this useless container. Becky is now in a detention facility. She's been held in one of several containers in the scorching heat, along with hundreds of other illegal migrants. Some have been here for months. Nexon Mason, who's also from Nigeria, has been detained since January. He says rounding up undocumented workers only to pack them in detention centers is counterproductive. He says it would make more sense for Libya to let the migrants work or send them back home to warn others. Many people are still on their way coming. They believe that we are living well here. But you send us back now so that we stop, we spread the news all over. Say, don't go to Libya. The place is bad now for you as an illegal immigrant. But many observers say it's unlikely such feedback would stem the flow of migrants now that Libya's economic prospects are looking up again. For the world, I'm Marine Olivesi in Tripoli. Marine's report was made possible by a fellowship from the French-American Foundation, United States. Still to come, we head into the Great Stone Bush on PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Mexico elects a new president on Sunday. It could be a key moment in Mexican history. Polls suggest the vote will mark the return to power of the PRI, the party that ruled Mexico for most of the 20th century. The significance isn't all that evident, though, to Luis, a Mexican-born high school junior in Los Angeles. As part of the storytelling project Sonic Trace, Luis set out to understand why the vote in Mexico is important. Since I was really little, I lived in Los Angeles, but my mom and dad are Mexicans. I wasn't born here. We came from Nayarit. My parents brought me over when I was only 10 months old. That's why you didn't hear me say my last name, because I'm undocumented. I have a younger brother and two younger sisters. My name is Jesus, and I'm Luis's brother, and I was born in the United States. My name is Sylvia. Um, I was born in Los Angeles. I'm Luis's sister. They were born here, so they're American citizens. 
And after Obama's executive order a couple weeks ago, it's looking like maybe I'll be able to work something out. One thing I know is that I consider myself an American. I'm not a Mexican. I've only been to Mexico once for Christmas vacation. I'm not even going to say anything about how I got back across the border. But here's the thing. I know I'm not Mexican. I mean, I really don't know much about Mexico. For instance, did you know they have a presidential election coming? It's this Sunday. A couple of months ago, I didn't know the candidates. Nothing. Then one night in my house, we had the Mexican presidential debates on. En unos minutos vamos a iniciar el segundo debate entre la candidata y There are three main parties in this election. PRI, PAN, and PRD. Yo soy el papá de Luis. Tengo 40 años. My dad belongs to the PRI. I asked him why, and he says, because of tradition. He's saying how his father and his grandfather were PRIistas. That's why. I asked him about the candidates I watched in the debate. He said he didn't know anything about the candidates. He voted for the PRI party back when he was in Mexico, and his party is a PRI. He's going to vote PRI no matter what. He said, if I'm so curious, I should go find out myself. I decided to go over to UCLA to talk to someone about this issue. My name is Gaspar Rivera Salgado. I'm a project director at the UCLA Labor Center. I'm from Oaxaca, and I came to the United States when I was 20 years old. So why does the Mexican elections matter for Los Angeles? For many different reasons, but the most important one is that Los Angeles is the second largest Mexican city anywhere. It is so important that all three presidential candidates have been through here. So it is interesting how our lives or the lives of Mexicans here is linked to the lives of Mexicans over there. I think Mexicans who are here have a very strong persuasion power with their families at home. Whatever happens, it's going to affect us. All of us have family at home. All of us, you know, the political future of Mexico is going to impact us directly. I figured that if what Gaspar was saying is true, I better learn a little more about this presidential election. I heard about a demonstration here in L.A. against the PRI and its candidate, Enrique Peña Nieto. He's leading all the polls, and he's expected to win. The demonstrators were calling for balanced media coverage. They were also demanding free and fair balloting on July 1st, Mexico's election day. I found out that when the PRI held on to power in Mexico for 71 years, they were known for cracking down on their political challengers and for election fraud. Peña Nieto is running as a new PRI, but this crowd in downtown LA was still focused on the one they remember. The old PRI, a PRI they didn't want to go back to. So what would make people like my dad back the PRI if the PRI was all the things they were saying? I got the number for an expert on the PRI and on Mexican politics in general. She's Denise Dresser, a university professor in Mexico City. Hello. Hello, Dr. Dresser. So I still don't know why they're so scared of the PRI winning and coming back in power well, I think that this comes from the fact that, that you didn't live in Mexico under the PRI's rule because the PRI um, had a reputation for being a very corrupt party, for being a very authoritarian party, for suppressing freedom of expression, and it, it was a party that in the past used repression and used authoritarian means to stifle opposition. 
So many young Mexicans feel that they wouldn't benefit in a country ruled by a party that hasn't really modernized itself. There are many accusations of the PRI's involvement with drug trafficking and with political protection for drug traffickers. And I think that, that this combination, this very toxic combination, is what is leading Mexican youth to rebel Uh, against the possibility of of a PRI, an unreformed PRI, coming back into office. I wanted to get the other side of the story. I found a police spokesman here in Los Angeles. My name is Francisco Flores. I have been practicing law in the private sector for 12 years. I was born and grew up in Mexico until I was 17, and then I moved to the States to go to college. So do you consider yourself a priesta? Yeah, I've been a member of that party ever since I started, you know, participating in in politics. To deny the mistakes of my party will be just ridiculously silly. I was interviewing some other people. It seems like they're all afraid of the PRI coming back into power. Why is that? There is a concern that if the PRI comes back again, uh, the PRI is going to behave with the old vices. But nowadays, it's a different party because of the electoral system in Mexico. There is real competition. Before, when the PRI was the only party that existed in Mexico, the PRI controlled the legislative branch, the Senate and the Congress, and the executive branch. And whomever wins this election is going to face real opposition in Congress. He's going to have to work in a shared agenda. There's going to be people who are going to point out his mistakes, which means there's going to be some checks and balances. But we need to get to the real debate, which is, why is it that it doesn't matter who gets into power? The level of corruption in this country remains the same or gets worse. So there's one more guy I needed to talk to, another expert on Mexican politics, Jose Merino. He's also a university professor in Mexico City. You know, I've been thinking about whether or not you should care about the election. And, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think you shouldn't, really. You've been betrayed by the Mexican government. This is still a country that is not taking care of the things that made your parents go to the U.S. in the first place. Are you going to be the first college graduate in your family? Yeah, I am. Well, if I have to think about it, I think Mexico needs you more than you need Mexico. So you have any other question, Luis? Well, out of curiosity, why do you stay in Mexico? I never asked myself that question. Let's see. I don't know if you have a place on Earth that you can fill your own where you are completely comfortable. Do you have that place? Yeah. Well, that's Mexico City for me. It's the place where I feel I can be my best. Like me right here. I think LA is a place where I feel better. Luis is an undocumented high school student in Los Angeles. His story was produced by Sonic Trace and the Independent Producer Project at station KCRW in Santa Monica. It's also part of Local Lore, an initiative of the Association of Independence and Radio and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. By the way, check out our profiles of Mexican voters and get updates on the Mexican election this weekend from reporter Miles Esty on Twitter. That's all at theworld.org. You're listening to The World from PRI. That's Public Radio International. Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up on The World, Chairman Mao wouldn't recognize the Cold War-era bomb shelters in Shanghai. 
Entrepreneurs have converted them into everything from a subterranean bar to a men's underwear boutique. Every one of these shelters are actually owned by the Air Defense Bureau, is the real landlord. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Back in the 1960s and 70s, things between China and the Soviet Union were a little tense. So Mao Zedong ordered the building of bomb shelters beneath major Chinese cities. These days, some of Beijing's shelters are open for tourists, and some of Shanghai's are open for business. The world's Mary Kay Magstad takes us on a tour. Shanghai's Peace Hotel is an Art Deco treasure where elderly jazz musicians conjure the spirit of a bygone era. In the 1930s, this is where Noel Coward polished his play Private Lives, where diplomats, spies, adventurers, and celebrities sipped cocktails. In August 1937, this hotel was nicked by an aerial bomb dropped by Chiang Kai-shek's Air Force. It apparently was trying to take out a Japanese warship, but missed. The Japanese struck back with their own aerial bombardment, and China's war with Japan was on. A few miles away, at a bar in the old French Quarter, a wiry 30-year-old guy named He Li pauses from knocking back vodka and orange juice to say his grandparents told him stories about the Japanese bombing. He says, they told me everyone was terrified, so they just covered their heads and ran wherever they could seek shelter. His grandparents might have liked to have taken refuge in the kind of place where he's drinking now, a bomb shelter, deep underground. It's now a popular bar called Seas. Other Shanghai bomb shelters have been turned into a wine shop, a recording studio, a men's underwear store and one that makes another play on bygone days. This shop sells record albums, rock, punk, hip-hop, and more. It's called Uptown, and it's run by an American named Sako. He prefers not to give a last name, but doesn't mind saying how he ended up here. Uh, Basically, I just followed a girl. My girlfriend from San Francisco, or ex-girlfriend, moved here. And I came to visit, and I was looking for a change. And I said, well, this is nice. I should move here. Now he has a border collie named Seamus for company, who sits panting on the cool bomb shelter floor. Sacco says he gets a steady stream of customers, some into vintage vinyl, some coming for the live gigs they have in this 3,000-square-foot subterranean space. Some visitors come for the novelty of visiting a bomb shelter, but Sacco says he also gets visits from the government to make sure this space is kept up to code. Every one of these shelters are actually owned by the Air Defense Bureau. I didn't realize that it was still an active thing. I thought this yeah. was something Mao did in the 60s and 70s. Now, even if you want to build a new complex with people living in it, you have to have a proper shelter that's approved by the Air Defense Bureau. In case... Uh, yeah, I don't know in case. <laughs> they have one building where... The bomb shelter is actually on the middle floor, <laughs> like on the 20th floor. And so sometimes they don't really make sense. But yeah, as long as there's a designated place where people can go during some sort of area. 
Back on the street, I ask one of the residents of the apartment building above the bomb shelter, a woman named Zhu Fuyi, if she thinks she'll ever have to use the record shop as an actual bomb shelter. No way, she says. What would we need it for? These days, China's at peace, and we don't have earthquakes here in Shanghai. But back at seas, the subterranean bar, He Li isn't so sure. I don't have any faith that peace is going to continue, and I don't have much faith in our diplomatic strategy. You see, a small country like the Philippines come to China and try to take our land, and I don't like that at all. He's talking about the Philippines' claim to a part of the South China Sea that is much closer to its shores than to China's, but which China still claims. Li says he likes what Mao Zedong used to say: that power comes from the barrel of a gun. His friend Liu Chun, also 30, nods as he sips his drink. He was in the army a few years back, and he says it's not good to talk politics, but there is one thing he'd like to say. If war will make China stronger, I would rather go for war. I would take my gun again and go for war. He knocks back the rest of his drink, grins, and says, "I hope China's leaders get my message." For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad, Shanghai. Rock and roll, a stiff cocktail, and more in those Shanghai bomb shelters. We've got a slideshow at theworld.org. In Iran, it's not legal to toss back a drink in a subterranean bar or anywhere else, for that matter. Alcohol is banned by Iran's Islamic State, but alcohol consumption seems to be on the rise there. Iranian officials say they're confiscating more alcoholic beverages, and in recent days, authorities upheld the death penalty for two Iranians found guilty of drinking. For a reaction, we turn to an Iranian entrepreneur in Tehran. We'll call him Bezad. He doesn't use his real name for security reasons. This was completely surprising to us. We never had an execution for alcohol before, and this was not for、uh, executing people who were smuggling alcohol, but people who were consuming it. A, a lot of people consume alcohol in Iran, and especially hard liquor. What were the circumstances? Somebody was in kind of a speakeasy having a drink, and the social police found them. Usually, the way alcohol is being sold in Iran is very like underground. So you know a person who knows a person who can deliver you the alcohol by your doorstep.、Mm. Probably what has happened is that maybe they had a big party and, and they had a, a lot of alcohol, and somebody called the、uh, social police and, and they came down and、uh, caught these guys. So it is pretty easy to find a drink if you're really looking for one in Tehran. Yes, you can find anything here in in Tehran, and I mean anything from handguns to drugs to alcohol to Prostitutes, and especially prostitution, is becoming a very big, big problem. And one other thing is because of the inequality in the society, we have a lot of、uh, divorce cases in Iran. These are mainly because the、um, the married people they are trying to find some other sources of security. So there's a lot of adultery going on. Bezad, you're probably tired of hearing and thinking about economic sanctions, but sanctions targeting Iran are tightening this weekend when the European Union clampdown on Iran's oil goes into full effect. Would you attribute、uh, the increase in all these troubles to economics, ergo to sanctions? It's like a、uh, a big social ill which is coming to a peak.、Mm. The economy, the social restrictions, in addition to sanctions and People running away from religion because religion now is is the law, 
everything creates a very tense society. Bezad, I gather you have a teenage son. How hard is that to be negotiating with a, a teenager who wants to go out regularly? That's got to be tough. The social restrictions that the government is putting on, on young people is that every time my son goes out with, the, with his girlfriend, uh, we're really afraid that they may catch them or beat them up or put them in jail. This is getting worse every day. And these are really, really worrying me as a, as a father. Bezad is not his real name. He's an Iranian entrepreneur who lives in Tehran. Thank you so much, Bezad, and good luck. Thank you very much for having me. For today's GeoQuiz, we're looking for the name of a historic building in the heart of London. This London landmark was originally commissioned by an Anglo-American trade association. It opened in July 1925 and was later declared the most expensive building in the world. But that's not how most people know the place today. For more than 70 years, this building has been home to the BBC World Service. Until now... The World Service is leaving its historic home this week for newer digs elsewhere in London. Okay, we'll give you a few seconds to name the BBC World Service's historic home. And time is up. Told you it was a few seconds. The answer is Bush House. Julian Marshall is a presenter for the BBC's NewsHour program. He's also presented numerous other programs at Bush House over the years. I've heard mixed reaction about the building getting shut down. It's got a lot of character and history, but because of its internal architecture, a lot of journalists have complained about working there over the years. Describe the building physically for us. I think that the most striking aspect of Bush House is the very, very imposing uh, facade, uh, two enormous pillars capped by a statue of two uh, enormous uh, figures uh, clasping hands. And then uh, into the building itself, uh, wonderful sweeping uh, staircases, uh, decorated ceilings. But as you say, if you move off those, uh, it all starts becoming uh, a little bit decrepit, which mm. for a lot of people is um, has been at least part of its uh, appeal. Uh, on the subject of those statues uh, in front of that imposing facade at Bush House, the clasped hands, uh, there's a story that one of those hands or arms was cut off at some point? I think it was in about 1944, Bush House suffered damage from a V-1 flying bot, and one of the statues lost an arm. And the statue, so it is said, uh, remained damaged until 1970 when an American visiting his daughter saw uh, the damaged statue. He worked for the Indiana Limestone Company and persuaded the company to send a new arm and a stonemason to attach it. And that's not the, the only American connection. It actually comes from the name of the man who, who commissioned the building, who got all the funds together to build it, uh, Irving T. Bush. And uh, those statues symbolize uh, Anglo-American friendship and the building bears the inscription uh, to the friendship of English-speaking uh, people. Now, the staff over the years uh, ha- has included some pretty well-known people, right? Yep. I think probably best known to your listeners was uh, George Orwell, the Mm. author, 1984. But he didn't actually enjoy uh, his work. He says, by some time in 1944, he wrote, I might be near human again Mm. uh, and able to write something serious. Describe for us the best days working at Bush. 
It's all a bit of a blur, to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> what the news business Getting me is. to compress 37 years. I mean, they've all been through here, you know, heads of state, foreign ministers. And I remember on one occasion going down to meet uh, the late King Mosheshwe II of Lesotho, who'd come in uh, to be interviewed. And uh, we took him into a lift, and the lift got stuck <laughs> between floors. Uh, and what How do you I explain that was, one? Was, was, was not only uh, that a lot of our um, equipment was not in working order, but that King Mosheshwe didn't have an awful lot of small talk. Oh, uh, and so it was a very awkward time I spent with him in that lift. What is it about Bush House that you will miss the most? I think it's the camaraderie. I think it's the informality. And it does kind of raise that question, doesn't it? Rather like when you move home, is it anything more uh, than the building? Of course it is. You know, it's all the memories that have built up. And, you know, that's what I feel about Bush House. The BBC's Julian Marshall joining us from Bush House, WC2B4PH. I'll never forget that London postcode. Julian, thank you so much. Thank you. Head up the old Bush House staircase and get a tour of this famous piece of BBC history. We've got a slideshow at theworld.org. Now to a different sort of history in the making. The final of the Euro 2012 soccer tournament will be played on Sunday in Ukraine. Defending champion Spain is facing a stiff challenge from former World Cup champs Italy. The Italians are red hot after beating favorites Germany in yesterday's semifinal. And the big hero was Mario Balotelli, who scored the two goals to sink the Germans. The world soccer maestro William Troop joins me now. Uh, William, full disclosure here, you are an Italy fan, so can you remain objective for the next couple of minutes? Marco, for you, I will try. Okay, good. So Mario Balotelli, he's not your typical Italian player, is he? No, uh, they call him Super Mario, and uh, he's not your typical Italian player, first of all, because he's so good. Second of all, also (laughs) because of his background, he's the son of Ghanaian immigrants. He had some medical issues as a child. The parents gave him to a hospital for care and then disappeared. He was put in foster care with an Italian family whose name is Balotelli. Mm. And his biological family actually disappeared for years from his life and only came back uh, when he was already a famous player. Mm. He very famously uh, uh, said, they are not my real family. Wow. That's a wild story. He's somewhat controversial in Italy. Yeah, I mean, he has a reputation for being a hothead on the field. Just yesterday, after he scored his second goal against Germany, you know, he took off his shirt and made this pose like a muscle man. Mm. But when you hear interviews with him, you know, he really doesn't sound that way. And, uh, for example, uh, here's what he said to a BBC interviewer after that game about those goals. Um, These two goals are really, especially they are important, so I I really liked it. And uh, I hope we can win even Sunday. We deserve it. So it doesn't exactly sound intimidating there. Right. And people who know Balotelli say that he's really kind of a sweet kid off the field. You know, with all the talk about racism and the potential for racist violence at the Euro 2012 Cup, um, I'm wondering if Balotelli has been a lightning rod for any of that. Well, yeah, he has. Um, There have been relatively few incidents of racism at this tournament, but uh, fans for Spain and for Croatia directed racist taunts at him. In Italy, there was a big controversy this week after a major sports newspaper printed a cartoon of Balotelli as King Kong climbing Big Ben because Italy and Balotelli beat England earlier in the tournament. There was a big to-do in Italy about whether this was racist or not. The newspaper claimed it wasn't, but clearly the image was, and they apologized. So can he give Italy the European title this Sunday? Is he the kind of key ingredient? 
Well, I hope so as an Italy fan, mm. but it's going to be tough. Spain has world-class defenders, so I think it's going to come down to which player on which team has the game of his life on Sunday, and you know, maybe this time it's Balotelli's turn. The world's William Troop, thank you, and uh, on that objectivity thing, nice work. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Summer music picks coming up next here on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Masterpiece, presenting Endeavor. Before his signature Red Jaguar, before he was Inspector Morse, he was the rookie detective constable Endeavor Morse, striving to make a name for himself. Sunday, July 1st at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. When everyone jumps in the swimming pool, bathing suit or not, you need some summer music to make the moment memorable. I have a few suggestions, as does global hit producer April Peavy. Hi, April. Hey, Marco. That sounds like a fun pool party. It's going to be a great pool party if we've got a good soundtrack, and I think we do. So you go first. What are we going to hear? Well, I want to start off with some surf guitar from Australia. Awesome. So this group is called the Bombay Royale. And actually, Marco, we had three members of the band on our show not too long ago. And I immediately fell in love with the music. As you can hear, they definitely have that like retro Bollywood ventures sort of feel to it. Yeah, they nail it. Yeah, they certainly do. This is the title track from their debut album, You, Me, Bullets, Love. So again, this song is called You, Me, Bullets, Love from the band The Bombay Royale. Great groove, and I love that title, You, Me, Bullets, Love. It certainly is. What's your first pick, Marco? Well, it's also an album that we featured earlier this year on the program. It's called Rocket Juice in the Moon. I think that's also the title of this formation of artists who all met allegedly on an airplane and decided they just had to make music together, and that's fine because I love all these guys. You've got Damon Albarn from the Britpop band Blur, Flea, the bassist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Tony Allen, uh, incredible drummer and percussionist from Nigeria, used to be Fela Kuti's drummer. Uh, they perform with a number of guest artists on this album. Here, uh, they perform with Shek Tidian Sek, who I, I feel is one of the most overlooked keyboard players anywhere in the world. He's from Mali. And on this project, uh, Shek Tidian Sek is just as funky as he can be, as you can hear on this tune called There, as in Shek Tidian Sek is so there. <laughs> I am so glad that you picked this, Marco. Yeah, it's an incredible album. Fantastic. Well, my next pick is reggae from the UK and singer Holly Cook. And in fact, I was first turned on to the CD from uh, Tom Schnabel over at KCRW. He's a regular contributor to our DJ pick uh, segment on the right. Global Hits. Now, Holly Cook, this is interesting. Holly Cook is the daughter of Paul Cook, the former drummer of the Sex Pistols. And on this album, she is nothing at all like punk. She has a rock steady beat on her self titled album. Here's the song That Very Night. You are the boy for my brand new 
I didn't know all that stuff about Holly Cook. I picked up this album too and thought, what a great album. But I had no idea she had all this like punk rock background in her family. It's a, it's a wonderful album, though. Yeah. Really cool. Definitely. So what's your second pick? Well, we go to Athens, not Athens, Greece, but Athens, Georgia. And this is an album uh, that many people know at this point. Uh, Alabama Shake's album Boys and Girls has been around for several months now. Uh, the band has appeared on numerous late-night talk shows, and I just love their sound. Lead singer Brittany Howard uh, sounds a lot like Janis Joplin, a, a voice that I just love. And then you take this tune like Heartbreaker, and it's just so retro. I mean, when was the last time you heard a dramatic intro like this? This is just great music to listen to as you're floating around the pool, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Got a mojito in my hand, and I'm just loving Alabama shakes. Yep. Um, you, you also are, are going retro, too, a bit. Yeah, I certainly am. I don't know if you remember, but when I was a kid, the summer meant the 45. And I'm talking about that little record, the 45 single vinyl with a picture sleeve Right, and not 99 cent downloads. Exactly. So my third pick is, is definitely a throwback to that era when the 45 rolled. Now, this record actually was originally recorded in 1966, but it was only just released this spring on what is known as Record Store Day. Mm. It's a day, as you know, when people can support their independent record stores and buy vinyl. Well, this record was released as a limited edition, 45, by a Toronto-based garage band called the Minor Birds. Now, I'll tell you who's in this group after we hear a little bit of it. But first, Louie, can you drop the needle? So, Marco, as we're listening to this, imagine Neil Young on guitar and Rick Matthews, later known as Rick James of Super Freak fame, singing vocals here. You've got to be kidding. Nope, I'm not kidding. (laughs) And yes, the two were in a group together back in the mid-60s, and this is great rock trivia that you can challenge your friends with in the pool. I'll say. It's not Super Freak, but it is Super Freaky. Definitely. Wow. I'm going to make you see me Rick James, Rick Matthews, who knew? Yep. So the song is called It's My Time by the Minor Birds, featuring Neil Young on guitar and Rick James on vocal. I love it. Well, the final pick in the song we'll go out on is uh, from a band that's also very retro. They've been around for decades. They're from the... Uh, country that used to be known as Dahomey in West Africa, now known as Benin. This is the Orchestra Polyritmo de Cotonou, now known simply as the Orchestra Polyritmo. They've been around for decades, as I said, and they've reformed the band. They bring in high life from Ghana and juju music and Afrobeat from neighboring Nigeria. And of course, it's a new album, so it's got this new slick sounding production. I love it, and this is one of the tracks I really am crazy about. It's called Von Vonono. 
We'll have a list of all our picks at theworld.org. April, thanks so much. I loved your picks this year. Thank you. Likewise. The world's global hit producer, April Peavy. We also want to hear from you. So send a list of the global summer hits you're listening to. Send them to theworld.org. Eric Goldberg composed the world's theme music from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston, supported by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.